From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We've been following two nurses during the pandemic, and since our last check-in, their lives have changed dramatically. Self-described baby nurse Anna Gordon-Norby left Colorado after graduating from CU. Now she's a prison nurse in Oregon, where wildfires exploded this summer. And my first day of the job, we ended up taking in 1,300 inmates from three different prisons that were in the path of the fires. Meanwhile, nursing veteran Erin Kunkel left her full-time ER gig to work in schools, supporting students and teachers. That's actually what I did yesterday. I spent the whole day vaccinating teachers, giving a bunch of them their second vaccines. I'll step back as they mostly ask each other questions. Then the deadly impact the pandemic has had on people with dementia and the toll on caregivers. CPR represents one of the few unbiased news sources still available to us. And in an age that we need to stay more informed than ever, it's important that news sources such as CPR still exist. The in-depth reporting is fantastic. All the different topics that are touched on in a day are things that we're interested in, and we so appreciate it. Thank you for what you do. To our membership community, thank you for supporting CPR. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Hey, Ryan. Hi. Someone's early. I had to make sure I wanted to see how tired I looked on the video, so I had to come in early. (laughs) Hi, Anna. Hi. The other day, I logged onto a video chat with Anna Gordon-Norby. When we first met her early in the pandemic, she was about to graduate nursing school. And she was interviewing all over the country for a job as a prison nurse. Well, she landed one in Oregon. She loves it. But the learning curve is steep. Well, I work swing shift now, too. So now I'm like, have to be used to staying up late and sleeping in, which I've never done in my life. So it is uh, on the early side for me. Okay, here's Erin. Hi, Erin. Hey, Erin. Hello. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. How are you guys? It's been a year. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. I'm glad you reached out. And this is Erin Kunkel, a veteran nurse we also met early in the pandemic. And as I did back then, I encouraged these two healthcare workers in very different chapters of their lives to forget about me and talk amongst themselves. Anna was eager for an update on Erin. It sounds like you've had a big career shift. Yeah, that is true. I did make quite a big change in my career. I um, have transitioned a little bit away from emergency medicine. I am still an ER nurse. I still work 24 hours a month in the ER, but I did step down from my leadership role and I moved over to the school district. So I work for Jeffco Public Schools as a district nurse. And I oversee three schools, a middle school, an elementary, and a preschool. It is very different, right, to go from uh, inpatient hospital setting to public health nursing or community nursing. And it has been a wonderful change. I never expected to be a public health nurse or a school nurse for that matter. And I have loved my last year. What inspired the shift? One day I was just online and saw the job opportunity and really had been looking for the last couple years in a change in my career. I was really hoping to find something different. I'd been in the ER for so long 
And so I took a leap of faith and made a big career change in the middle of a pandemic. How much interaction do you have with the kids right now? Yeah, so my elementary school is 100% in person. My middle school is hybrid, and so they're in school two days a week. But because our numbers look so good right now, we're actually transitioning all the kids in the whole district back to 100% in person. If they want to stay remote, they totally can. But they're now going to have the opportunity to be in person 100%. Wow. So So I am in the building every week help make sure that kids are safe and we have safety plans in place to screen kids and make sure that sick kids are not coming in the building, Um, making sure that families have access to testing or care if they need it, and just being an advocate, again, for my patients, just in that they're now called students and they're in a different (laughs) setting. Uh, Anna, I am so excited to hear that you got a new job in the career field of your dreams. And mm-hmm. I just want to hear all, a lot about it. You you made a big move. Yep, I know. I'm in Oregon. Yeah. So speaking of, you know, applying for jobs in a pandemic, add on applying for jobs in a state that really, like literally no one knows you. And as a new grad, so it was tough. It was, it was a long process. Um, and my first day at the penitentiary was the day of the fire evacuations that I don't know if you saw on the news at all, you know, Western Oregon was all on fire. (laughs) It was burning down in September. And my first day of the job, we ended up taking in 1300 inmates or we call them AICs, adults in custody. We took in 1300 AICs from three different prisons that were in the path of the fires. It was the evacuation day and everybody I spoke to was like, oh, it's your first day. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, it's your, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And I'm here like, this is all new. It looks chaotic, but I don't really know how chaotic it is because I have nothing to compare it to. So we kind of, I started off with a bang with, you know, and we already have 2000 AICs at our prison. So almost doubling that. In a pandemic. In a pandemic, yeah, you're trying to keep them safe and not yeah. close together. Wow, it was wild. And if you know, of course, I I didn't have anything to do with like the operational side of things, but just having these people come in, and then there were we had like a handful of nurses from one of the prisons in, so there were you know an extra cluster of people that didn't really have a place to be in our health services area, and. Just briefly in the prison, we have different posts as nurses. There's like, I don't know, six or eight posts that you could be in. And a post is like just a different area of the prison or? Different area of the prison and different jobs. So, for example, there's the med room. So you would be in charge of the med room and taking orders from the doctors and nurse practitioners and then working in med lines. So all of our medication administration we are kind of locked in what I call a shark cage and you're in there with your med cart and then the AICs come in a line and one at a time you give them their medications and then they take it in front of you and then they leave. And so it's a really fast paced med handout. And so there's that. And then there's also, we have an infirmary like the hospital within the the prison. We have a whole behavioral health and mental health building Um, And at the beginning, you know, I'm learning these posts and also learning how they are different now because of the pandemic or then because of the fire evacuation. Wow. Are you um, 
glad you made the change to Oregon and into the nursing field you're in. I am. I'm really glad. I I do really love my job. This last week was particularly tough and probably my least favorite week of my whole time there, but I love it. I love working with the AICs. Every interaction I have with the guys is interesting and, you know, fun. Being in Oregon is nice. You know, I got to see my dad lives up north. And now that my parents all have each gotten their first shot, I'm fully vaccinated. So I'm really looking forward to getting to hug them soon. (laughs) Yeah. Erin, you're vaccinated too, I gather? Yep. So because I'm still working in the ER, I was able to get my vaccine in December. So I'm fully vaccinated. And Teachers have all been given the opportunity. And that's actually what I did yesterday. I spent the whole day vaccinating teachers, giving a bunch of them their second vaccine. So like full circle, right, to be in the front line. And then now to be able to be a part of vaccinating the community and being able to, you know, give them that opportunity to feel safe. How did the teachers react to being vaccinated? You know, I've done a couple of vaccine clinics and they are so thankful and so appreciative. Um, we had lots of pictures and a lot of teachers in tears, you know, knowing that they're that much closer to having that immunity that, you know, we've all longed for. I was thinking about you yesterday. I was listening to a podcast um, this American Life have been doing these on Odessa High School in Texas. And they mentioned that the high school, like the school nurses, the two nurses were in charge of contact tracing for the hundreds or thousands, I forget how many, all of the students. So is that something you do? Are you doing contact tracing? That is what I'm doing. So if a student is positive and a family calls me, I contact trace that student. And when were they in the last last time in the building? Who did they sit by? You know, my administrative teams at my schools are phenomenal. I work very closely with them. We work and we go up and we have protocols and we measure desks to see who was within that six feet distance or, you know, if they had their masks off during lunch, who gets quarantined based on distance. And we then call all the families and let them know that your student has been exposed, you're on quarantine, these are your dates that they can come back to the building. And then I work with the student or staff member who is positive and make sure that they have what they need, how they're feeling. Sometimes if we have more than one positive in a school building, there's a protocol on how we're going to clean the building. So it's all hands on deck. Anna, you said that you had a really hard week, your least favorite week thus far working in a correctional facility. Could you reflect on that? Um, yeah, I... So the Oregon State Penitentiary was built in 1865. (laughs) And so a lot of the building, most of the buildings are real old. And so (laughs) when you walk into the infirmary, my joke is to kind of picture like the the tent hospitals in MASH, the TV show. (laughs) I mean, obviously we're not in a tent, but it's kind of (laughs) like that. Like, you know, the beds with some curtains, but they're all in one big room. We don't have oxygen in the walls. Uh, We don't have suction. So there are definitely some levels of care that we can't provide there. Um, The week started out just kind of particularly slow, which I have a hard time with slow days just because it's, you know, I, I feel like I kind of at a loss for something productive to do other than like cleaning a lot of my patients were real kind of long-term care people who, you know, will probably just live in the infirmary 
And so the first couple of days were slow. And then I actually had um, my first patient, I had a patient die and it was my first time dealing with that. He was on hospice. Like we knew it was going to happen. He died in the morning on my Friday, which was this past Monday. So he died in the morning before I was there. But the day before, the evening before, um, in his last 24 hours were really tough. And just that kind of end of life body shutting down. Yeah, it was really hard for me. It was one of those things that you, you know, you want him to go for his sake um, because this tough, hard guy, you know, in this situation where, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't want to be losing his capacity and his mental uh, alertness. And, but then also, you know, caring for him and, and being sad when he left. So that was rough. Your first death is always so tough. You know, you always remember those first deaths that you have and, you know, you really do make those connections with your patients. And, you know, I have always said that connecting with your patients, no matter what setting you're in, is always so impactful. And so when you lose your first patient, it can really be heartbreaking. Erin, do you yeah. remember your first lost patient? Uh, I have a handful of patients when I was brand new that died that were really tough. I don't know which one was my first one, but I do have some. That's just something you always carry with you. Yeah, you, you absolutely do. And you'll carry that through your entire career, you know, remembering what those first losses were like or any impactful loss that you have throughout your career. But that first one is really impactful. Um, so Erin, at this time last year, when I was in my last course in nursing school, my last course was public health. Yeah. And to do it virtually, we ended up working with Jeffco Public Schools and we did little group projects where we had to make like social media posts to like teach about a certain issue. Oh. I don't remember. I think we did like ACL injuries or something. But so I was my first introduction to TikTok too. We had to make a little TikTok video. <laughs> so I don't know if those are going to be in, in your, it was like middle school age, but um, yeah, so we made those that they were going to like circulate this year somehow. I don't I'll follow up and ask about those. That, yeah. I, that is really cool. I mean, like, how can you communicate about health and injuries via TikTok, right? Mm -hmm. I never thought I'd ever work on TikTok or on social <laughs> media, but here we are, right? Uh, have yeah. you both then made TikTok health videos? And can you share them with us? <laughs> she can probably share hers. I don't have any. I just get to see them. Yeah, I ended up that like, I was like, well, now I have to look at TikTok, right? And figure it out. And I got real hooked for about a week or two. And I made a little video about how to wear a mask. And that was really fun. It took me way longer than it probably should have to make because I don't really understand it still. But we're not middle schoolers. Right. Right. I know. I What's your TikTok handle? We're going to look this up. <laughs> it's uh, at A underscore Gorby. G-O-R-B-Y. Okay. Here you are. And I have a video. Uh, I had 178 views, so. Okay, here we go. We're going to watch this. <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> Keep your germs in check. Oh, the, your nose is out and it says nope. 
<laughs> the right oh fit. Oh my god. The right fit is the tight fit. But remember, don't touch the outside where other people's germs may be. And Aaron, are some of the students who interact with with school nurses? I wonder if that's sometimes the only health care they may be getting. Yeah, and that is true. And especially, you know, our district is so large that it depends on what school you're at, how much the nurse may be helping them get access to health care and other schools, not so much. But yeah, sometimes I call families and we talk through symptoms and we talk through how they're feeling and I'm able to connect them with a clinic if they need to be seen at a clinic or give them guidance of when I need them to go see a provider or get a note from a provider or, you know, I actually communicate a lot with providers myself. I, um, if I have a student who has a health need for the school, I can contact the provider myself and make sure that the school is providing that student with what they need to be safe and successful in the building. You're a connector. You're a connector in many ways. <laughs> yeah, it's. I had no idea until I entered the school district how much of a role the nurse plays in making sure students have access to their education and that their health care is not a barrier to them. Anna, is it scary to work in a prison? <laughs> that was one of my questions. <laughs> No, it, it's not. It's um, from what I've experienced, we have a very, uh, as nurses, we have a very unique relationship with the AICs and kind of like what Erin was saying, some of our AICs, we might be kind of the first health care they've really received or consistent health care they re- received. And let me just say that AI- AIC is adult in custody. So what we think of it as inmate. Right. And I, it's so funny. So I, Oregon adopted the AIC language, I think just a couple of years ago. And oftentimes in conversation, I'll actually just use the word inmate because everybody knows what that means. We do have some guys who have been there for so long that they really don't like the AIC terminology. And they're like, no, I'm a convict. I'm a convict, <laughs> which we very much don't use that language anymore. Hmm. Anyway, some of these AICs, the health literacy is very diverse. And so speaking to these guys, you know, some of them you're having to, when you're doing patient education, you're having to really back up and explain just kind of the very basic mechanism of digestion or uh, how an infection, a skin infection will fester, will will start. Um, I feel like um, education would be one of, your biggest and most impactful things that you can bring to these inmates or these AICs? Yeah, it is. It's also kind of one of the most frustrating for me because you can educate them, you know, a type two diabetic on nutrition choices, but they really don't have that much opportunity to make nutritional choices. You know, they're like, they are so restricted in just in what their life is that like, some things that I want to recommend, I know that they really just don't have control over. Anna Gordon Norby, when we first spoke, you, me, and Aaron, you referred to yourself as a baby nurse. I think these were your <laughs> these were your words. They've stuck with me. This idea of a baby nurse. I'm curious, Anna, if you feel still like a baby nurse. And then, Aaron, you know, we brought you in as a veteran. 
But now you're in a brand new environment. And I wonder I if to some extent yeah. you're you're a baby again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Amy. Um, so there are aspects that yes, I still feel like a baby nurse. There are some things that I do that no, I feel like an expert <laughs> already just because there may be more routine or kind of basic things that we do. But one of the issues with the prison is, you know, you have your standard things that you do every day and they're not very challenging. They're important to do, but they're, you know, they're easy to get a, ha a handle of. But then you're also, we are first responders. So anything can happen. And so I'm still very scared about being in that post where you are the primary first responder and then coming up on an emergency emergency situation that I haven't encountered yet. Um, there are some times where I have to remind my colleagues that I'm a new nurse. <laughs> like, no, will you please come and help me with this? Or can I talk you through or that comment you just made? Can we go back and you explain to me why you made that comment? Erin, do you feel in some ways that you've returned to infancy? <laughs> Yeah, that's um, a really good way to put it. You know, I had been in the hospital for 16, almost 17 years. And so to then to transition to a completely different line of nursing, I do feel like a baby nurse. And, you know, we have a group of us that all started at the same time and we're called the newbies. So that's mm -hmm. our title as a newbie nurse. And it's been wonderful, though. We have the group of newbies. And then we all have mentors that we can go to that walk us through everything that we need to know a in COVID and then B helping us with what a normal year looks like. They say a, it takes three years to be comfortable as a school nurse, which I was shocked that it was going to take that long. But after this first year, I can absolutely see why just like you, Anna, there's, it takes a long time to see everything for the first time. So I feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose again, <laughs> but it's been good, right? It's challenged my brain in a very new way and it's been great. Erin, Anna, it's really nice to have caught up. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for reaching yeah. out. Two nurses on very different paths in the pandemic. Anna Gordon-Norby, who is now based at a prison in Oregon, and Erin Kunkel, who's with Jeffco Schools. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how the pandemic has changed life for people with Alzheimer's and for their caregivers. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. John Evans joined the military after 9-11 to get his life on track, but then... I'm sitting on the edge of my cot, getting my boots on, and then there was a very loud explosion. 30 dead, two wounded. The trauma led to addiction, but John found his way back through recovery. His story on Back From Broken. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sponsored by CU Anschutz Department of Psychiatry. People with dementia have been hit hard in the pandemic. In Colorado, deaths among this population are up nearly a quarter. The toll on caregivers is incalculable. Let's explore both these aspects with Amelia Schaefer, head of the Colorado Alzheimer's Association. Amelia, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. And Jay Kephart of Denver cares for her husband at home. He has a form of dementia called Lewy body disease. And Jay, it's nice to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you too again. Amelia, 
It's been a year. I know. Sometimes that's hard to wrap my mind around. And uh, sometimes, my, it feels like it's been a year. Uh, Amelia, people with dementia are twice as likely to have contracted COVID. Why is that? Yeah, I think we see three main reasons. First, as many of you know, uh, care communities have been hit hard. And we know that many people living in care communities have dementia. And so that's certainly one reason. Pardon me. But we know another reason is that contributing factors that can raise your risk of having dementia, things like hypertension and diabetes, also can raise your risk of having COVID and dying from COVID. And we also know that, you know, with Alzheimer's and other dementias, there's a breakdown in that blood-brain barrier, and that can actually make people more susceptible to viral infections. But I think the other thing that's more of a social reason Mm. is that, you know, people with Alzheimer's and dementia may not remember or understand why they need to wear masks or wash their hands or keep socially distant. And I think... You know, that's a that's a challenge from a social standpoint. I'd like to unpack just a few of those. So you say care communities. I'm picturing, you know, like nursing homes. In other words, we know the virus tore through those, especially early on. So that would have perhaps affected people, I gather, Amelia, in memory care. That's correct. Yeah, memory care. But even just nursing homes and general assisted livings, many people there are living with some form of dementia. And then just talk a little bit about the blood-brain barrier. I was interested in that science. You don't have to go into great depth, but um, just so unpack that for us. Sure. Well, I think to be able to understand that, you know, your brain is, it's a highly complex organ. And so when you have something like a concussion or you have some other injury to your brain, it actually puts your brain at risk for any other neurological disorder. And so, you know, we know that some of those challenges occur when you have Alzheimer's or dementia. And so that is why one, you know, one of the risk factors for Alzheimer's is someone who's had previous head injuries. It makes their brain more susceptible to those and other viral infections. And other viral infections. Right. And then there's just this general sense that someone with dementia may not even be aware there's a pandemic. Absolutely. I think, you know, many of us would like to not be aware there's a pandemic, but but for people with Alzheimer's and dementia, they're wondering, why can't I live life the way I did before? We've heard from so many caregivers who were separated from their loved ones during the pandemic. And we know that our physical health is connected to our emotional and social well-being. And so for individuals with Alzheimer's and dementia, you can't take those two apart. They need that essential human contact. And in many cases, they really did lose all of that. And so, you know, we can't downplay the emotional aspects Mm -hmm. of of, uh, increase in death. So when I say that deaths among people with dementia were up 23% in Colorado last year, that doesn't necessarily mean people died from COVID, but maybe because of COVID? That's a great way to put it. Some died of COVID, but you're absolutely right that even those, you know, after looking at the data for the last five years, even those we expected to die, to have a 23% increase on top of that um, was a bit of a shock to us. And and we're still researching. Why is that? You know, researchers don't exactly know why that is. There are a number of factors, but I think it's fair to say many people who didn't die of COVID died because of COVID. All right. Jay Kephart, as we said, you care for your husband at home. And when we spoke about a year ago, you told us about the tattoos you have on your arms. Let's listen back to that. So they face me because one of them says, shut up. 
So if I have my arm, you know, on a table or something, I don't want other people to think I'm saying shut up to them. They face you. Okay. So that's why it faces me. And it's when something goes wrong with him, you know, that he did something all of a sudden that he never did before or even in five minutes ago. So I want to tell him you did this wrong or what are you doing that or blah, blah, blah. I need to shut up. It's not going to do any good to tell him anything. And it's only going to make his feelings hurt or confused or make him more anxious. So you have to remember what the feelings are all the time. And then the other one says, it's not about you. So that when he is mean to me or says something or ignores me, things that you could take personally, I need to remember not to take it personally. It's not about me. So that one is a mirror on my hand and it has the words, it's not about you. Shut up and it's not about you. I have thought about your tattoos and the message they convey to you, Jay, on and off for this entire year. Have you had to consult those tattoos lately? (laughs) Yes, of course I do. (laughs) But I have to admit it's not as often. So it's become a bit of a more of a habit. But of course, I'm reactive, so it'll never be a habit. Tell me just about maybe some of the challenges and if there have been some rewards in caring for your husband for the last year. Well, the challenges have been, I think last year he was having um, hallucinations and now they're 24-7. He has people around, or mostly people now, but some animals he sees, but they're in the house all the time. And in fact, when you were talking about not understanding masking and distance, I had to put up signs on all of our doors around the house that says all the rules. You must have a mask on, and then I have, unless you've had COVID, you know, and have antibodies, so that when he sees people without masks on in the house, he doesn't uh, get all upset, you know, and distancing. So I've had to do that in the house so that he knows that all the people that are in the house have to know what the rules are. In other words, so that's been important to him. You've written the rules around his hallucinations. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Whoa. Yes. I have to go along with them. You can't fight with them. You know, you can try to distract them, you know, reassure them, um, redirect them, anything like that. But you can't fight with them. Fascinating. They're real. You've built masking rules around the idea that his hallucinations don't wear masks, but you still need to instill his own good behavior with masks. Well, he doesn't go anywhere much and he goes nowhere without me. So, yes, but he, you know, he walks the dog still. You know, we're in a, um, well, not totally gated community, but something like that. So I know that he, you know, usually can't wander, although he has a watch so I can find him. Hmm. But um, he wears his mask even when he doesn't have to. Oh, he wears his mask in the house all the time. You're not all the time, but a lot of the time because he doesn't want to affect these other people. Or there's kids, so he wants to be careful around all the kids. Oh, I see. How are you doing? (laughs) Notice that I'm I'm pausing and you notice I talk a lot and fast. Um, I'm doing okay. There's really no choice. So you just have to do okay. And, you know, I laugh about it a lot with him. They are funny. He says and does funny things. Um. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes it gets irritating. And actually, a few weeks ago, it started getting a little scary. He's gotten up at night and gotten totally dressed to go somewhere. And he was insistent. He had to be at a meeting and the bus was leaving and I had to let him leave the house. Mm. And I had a hard time getting him to stay inside, calm down. 
I don't even remember what I said. You have to be constantly on alert. Constantly. You have to see where they are, what they're doing, what they're getting into, and then be ready to respond to any of these unusual things that happen. Does he resist or fight back? Is that something that you have to contend with? Only two times. Only these two times a few weeks ago, and they absolutely have scared me. Um, You know, I have, well, I took the, I have a, we have a fire station across the street, so I wrote down their phone number now so that I'm prepared. I have a pad outside the bedroom door that chimes if he takes one step on it so that I know that something's going on. Um... Oh, my son lives about 10 minutes away, so he's now on alert that he needs to come. People have said you should have a locked door. He has not gotten that bad. He mm. he really hasn't. And uh, But it has happened two times that has made me nervous. Well, and of course, it must result in a certain hypervigilance if you're constantly thinking, is he going to try to leave? Is he going to try something that could endanger himself or you? Um, Amelia, it occurs to me that all of this would be exacerbated in the isolation of the pandemic. I mean, one thing I would naturally turn to in a situation like this is other people and support groups and hugs and kisses and things like that. But that is less possible for caregivers, Amelia Schaefer. Yes, it absolutely is. And I would say Jay is one savvy caregiver, (laughs) honestly, to hear her solutions are just, I think, so important for people to understand there are many things you can try. Some will work, some won't. And some of that, honestly, um, Ryan, people who visit you may say, hey, have you tried this? Or maybe they have a respite provider in the home and maybe make a suggestion. And when you don't have that, you really have to be resourceful and kind of hustle to find the solutions. Um, We teach classes on this. We get calls on our helpline about this. So I know this is frequent and Jay is not alone in this as a caregiver. And so what kind of community is there right now without a lot of in-person gatherings to support folks like Jay? Yeah, we've done a ton of virtual. Jay and I were just talking before this about how we've all become so comfortable on Zoom and Google Meets because we've had to. And so I think the resourcefulness I've seen has been just inspiring. So people any day of the week can go to a virtual support group, can call um, our 24-7 helpline. They can go online and take an online class or even take a live webinar through Zoom. So there are a lot of resources, but boy, I can't tell you how much we can't wait to get back to in-person. Which leads me to a question about vaccination. Jay, have you, if you don't mind sharing this, have you been vaccinated? And what about your husband? Yes, we have. (laughs) You can come to my house and hug any (laughs) time. That sounds like a lovely offer. Um, It does not sound like that's a game changer in terms of how much you're engaging with the outside world, though. That's correct. That is correct. Although I did take Mike with me. We went to the grocery store. It's the first time he's been in the grocery store in a year. How did that go? Oh, he loved it. I mean, he wants to go out. First of all, you have to remember he still wants to drive. So just to even be in the car and go somewhere, he was just thrilled, which I don't do a lot with. He did used to have a driver, and those are the things we've had to give up with the pandemic. And then uh, we did start using the driver again after, you know, we started getting used to all the rules and stuff. And he moved. He used to have a companion that came over one day a week to take him to lunch. And now we've, you know, he can do that again. And of course, she has a full time job. So I'm just having to look for more people to engage with him. 
Amelia, what is your general recommendation for caregivers and for those with dementia around vaccines and re-engagement in the world? Yeah, well, we we as an association are certainly recommending that individuals with dementia and their caregivers get the vaccine. It is, we know that more people are dying um, when they have dementia, they're dying from COVID. So, you know, it's important for us from a public health standpoint to make that recommendation. And I think, you know, uh, we've all been in this cocoon this past year. And so I think it's going to take us all some time to get back out and dip our toes and get back out in the world. And, and we're following CDC guidelines and making those recommendations based on the best evidence that we have at the time. So, boy, I'll, I'll come over and give you a hug, Jay. <laughs> I guess just briefly, Amelia, in a, in a few seconds, uh, there must be disparities as well. I mean, for people who may not be able to afford taking off work or, you know, staying home with a loved one. Yeah, there absolutely are. There are disparities with um, Hispanic Latinos and Black African Americans when it comes to dementia, but we also know with COVID. And so Mm. we're really paying attention to those social determinants of health and trying to be a part of that solution and offering more access and doing what we can to help connect people with the right kind of health care. Well, I am so grateful for your time, for sharing your story. That's Amelia Schaefer, Executive Director of the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado, and Jay Caphart of Denver, who cares for her husband, Mike, who has Lewy body dementia. Many doctors in rural areas leave their communities within just five years. That's according to the Colorado Rural Health Center which finds 40% leave in that five-year window. The long hours and myriad responsibilities make recruiting hard. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce takes us to the town of Fairplay, which has been struggling to attract and keep a doctor for years. And you're from Bailey. Well, welcome to Fairplay. There's a patient in one room of the small South Park Healthcare building. He doesn't want to give his name because he says his wife is suspicious of vaccines. And an anti-vaxxer, and, uh, and I'd rather not have it. Rather right. she doesn't know. Right. All right, no fuss for 70-year-old physician Dr. Catherine Fitting. Ready, one, two, three, poke. She sticks him with his first COVID-19 shot, jokes around with him a little. I'm going to give you this card. You'll have to hide it in your billfold. Okay, it shows you got the Moderna vaccine. There's the lot number. Then she's off to see another patient. Long gray hair back in a braid, a denim button-up to match her blue jeans. She's got a lot of these vaccines to give today, and she feels energized by that. Everybody who walks through that door wants to be there, is excited about getting their shot, and for a lot of our people, this is the biggest social event they've attended since COVID started. Catherine Fitting is the only primary care doc in Park County, an area just about the size of Delaware. She moved out here to start her practice in 2004 after spending nearly two decades as a kidney specialist in Denver. She worked to fundraise for the new clinic building in Fair Play, where she works now. It opened in 2008. And it's a wonderful facility. It's just absolutely perfect for the community. She saw it as a great capstone to her career, since just a few years later, she was having some of her own health problems, which forced her to hang up her stethoscope. Well, I, I was, yes, I was retired. I've been retired since 2013. Huh. Um, to 
help explain, here's Michelle Mills, CEO of the Colorado Rural Health Center. It's very difficult to recruit, especially in really small or frontier counties. A report from her organization says it can take an average of one to three years to find the right candidate for a rural physician post. Dr. Fitting's beloved clinic closed completely after she retired. She spent the next half decade not only trying to find a replacement for herself, but to find a way for the clinic to stay afloat. It's incredibly hard to stay sustainable and and especially financially viable because it's, you know, a losing game unless you have a really high volume of patients. Adam Mastriani is now the operations director for the South Park Health Clinic. These days, it's run by Health One, the largest healthcare system in the Denver metro area. Dr. Fitting helped spearhead a successful campaign for a 1% local sales tax increase in 2016 to help the clinic. That money created a new health service district with enough money to shop around for a big corporate partnership. Health One reopened the clinic in the fall of 2019. Park County had been without any traditional health care providers for more than five years. Mastriani says the clinic is still not breaking even. It's still definitely a loss for us as an organization, but we have the ability with economy of scale to kind of, you know, have the appetite for some of these other ventures in our community. The clinic reopened with Health One announcing the hire of a new family practice physician. But just six months after he started, he quit. Fitting says the job basically has you on call 24-7 in an isolated place far from many modern amenities. There's no escape. That's the thing. Is you, if, if you don't have the personality for this type of practice, you're going to feel very trapped. Following the new doctor's departure, Fitting told Health One she was feeling well enough to resume her old post. I don't like being retired. I would much rather be working. I feel like I... And back where I belong. This is this is what I want to be doing. I won't make it hurt. All right, come right in. She's thinking she'd like to keep at this for a few more years yet. And she's no longer alone. Health One recently hired a full-time nurse practitioner for the clinic. Fitting says there's still no line out the door to take over her role. Though if the right doc came along... Who was 30 years younger and going to stay here for another 30 years, if only he could have this job, I'd give it up in a minute in order to secure that. Even in that circumstance, she says she would still want to cover their days off. In Fair Play, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Room 132 is back in school, face-to-face. It's the class our education reporter Jenny Brendine has been checking in on at Josephine Hodgkins Leadership Academy in the Westminster School District. Today, Jenny shares what's been lost and gained in the pandemic, and what's next for teacher Renee Sutton's classroom. They were just thrilled to be back, you know, working and just trying and happy to see each other again. That's teacher Renee Sutton talking about her students. She was thrilled to be back, too. It is way better. Now, I don't love the mask, but it's still way better than trying to teach through a little box. The kids crowd around me at recess. They love the microphone. They've changed since I last saw them in person in October. I'm nine 
years old now. Some are a year older. Jordan's long hair is even longer. Justin's lost most of his perm. Amaya's taller. Valentina wears glasses now. But they have some of the same old gripes. I got so upset because the mask kept hurting my ears for being too tight and um, can't breathe much. Masks aside, they are super happy to be back in person. They really disliked remote learning. For one, it was harder. And Justin says home is home and school is school. I couldn't imagine school at my house because it's my house and I can't imagine school. Some of them say it was hard relying on sisters, brothers, and parents for help. My family is from Mexico and they don't speak English that much, so it's kind of complicated. But now they're back in class. Nationally, a half a dozen studies show students have regressed because of lost classroom time, particularly among children living in poverty. If I go through and I start looking at each of the kids... Sutton goes over mid-year test results. Surprising to her, most of her students grew academically. This is a student that I definitely already had some concerns about. But some are behind. Because over remote, it was very difficult to keep attention. It was very unfocused. It was really a struggle. So then as we come back, there was some growth, but yet it's still far from where we need to be. But Principal Amber Zwykowski says teachers have so many more tricks and tools now that they're back in the classroom. She says remote learning didn't allow for the art of teaching. The art. That is where the real magic happens. Sutton has the art of teaching on full display in her classroom. The kids love a quick warm-up before a lesson on fractions. And here's where Sutton shows how teaching is so much better in the classroom. She asks the students to compare one-sixth of a short-distance race with one-sixth of a long race. Are the one-sixth segments the same length? No! But one kid says they are the same. He makes his case. got two cookies, one small, one big, and I cut them in half. The class debates. Sutton grabs a couple of pieces of paper, different sizes. Imagine they're two candy bars, she says. She cuts them in two. Lo and behold, the fractions, or pieces of candy bar, are different sizes. Which one do you want? The energy and engagement, laughter and live demonstration, you just can't replicate that online. And where do I get the closing sentence from? Sutton knows this year the kids' writing has suffered too. Today she's reviewing how to write quick paragraphs with three different reasons the students like a particular school lunch. I can't say I like cheesy dunkers because they're cheesy. And then the next one I say, oh, they're so full of cheese. And then the third Some one kids I say, struggle organizing their ideas into separate thoughts. But others show off lots of adjectives in their descriptions, like Sebastian's favorite sloppy joes. It looks like a deflated burger spilling something from its insides. His last sentence is, the taste makes me groove like Michael Jackson. Sutton and Principal Zwykowski say the lost learning narrative is too simplistic. Students have made gains in areas, like Alejandro's computer skills. I'm learning new things, like now I know how to copy these. He shows me how he shuttles material between tabs. I'm going to put paste. There's a tab. And I do it here to add a shortcut so it's easier. The kids say they've also gotten closer. After the entire cafeteria claps out happy birthday for someone, 
Room 132 sits down for lunch together. Here's Amaya. Now that we're not just looking at a screen all day and we actually get to see each other and we get to talk to each other more and sit by each other at lunch, I think we've gained more of a friendship than we had when we were on Zoom. And hopefully they won't have to go back to Zoom for the rest of the year. I'm Jenny Rendine, CPR News. You can read Jenny's series on Room 132 during a year of pandemic learning at CPR.org. Finally today, we'd all love to swap our snow shovels for garden spades. Spring has sprung, so it's time for our seasonal gardening segment. Ahead of that, send us your questions about all things flora, and we'll get answers from Fatima Ahmad of Frontline Farms on Thursday. Our email address for your questions, Matters at CPR.org. That's Matters at CPR.org for your gardening questions. And thanks, as always, to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Nell London. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.